This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, I'm Steph. And I'm Simon. And this is The Food Fight, a frank discussion of food culture featuring Australia's top chefs, producers, and experts. We'll chat about real issues and go places others won't. This podcast travels throughout the country and we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather and speak. And we pay respect to elders, past, present and emerging. This episode we're chatting with Steve Folletti from Moonlight Flat Oysters in Batemans Bay about his journey into becoming an oyster farmer, how he measures, manages and maintains quality, the way the service of oysters has changed over the years and the role he's played in that, and about his award-winning, oyster-matching, borrowed cuttings pick-pull wine. Steve Folletti, thanks for joining me on the Food Fight. Great to be here. A bit of a spur of the moment one, uh, being down here, stuck on the south, well not stuck on the south coast, it's kind of nice to be here, but I, I'm spending a bit of extra time down here while uh, Wollongong's in lockdown. Doing it tough at Batemans Bay. Yeah, doing it so tough. I mean, <laughs> God, we live in a nice place down here, don't we? Um, we're going to talk all about oysters today, and I'm really looking forward to it. We met uh, when, when I put together the... South Coast Cookbook in 2015, the South Coast Cookbook 2, and to this day, you handed me the single greatest oyster I've eaten in my (laughs) life, which was was a Claire de Lune that you just took out of one of the trays on the flat, (laughs) on Moonlight Flat, and shucked for me and said, help yourself, and I got a few more. I was lucky enough to get a few more that day as well, and I tell you what, that experience, I've, I've... yeah, again, I, I mean, it's all a sort of a, a time and place sort of thing. Terrific but that you still remember it. That's, oh, mate, <laughs> it was the best. It was the best. I was like, this, I, this is the best job in the world right now. Like, right now, I have the best job in the world. <laughs> but uh, I think there's so much to get to, and luckily with this podcast, we've got so much time to, to get through it all. But um, to start, we'll lead on to the, the story of Moonlight Flat and your story as an oyster grower. But I think... Um, I mean, back in the day, remembering my dad and the way that his mates and stuff used to eat oysters and, and that sort of thing, uh, our culture of the, the traditional, oh, traditional, it's not nice to say traditional, but the Australian culture of eating oysters at pubs and RSL clubs and, and, and places, places like that, I think cha- things are changing a lot now um, in, in the way that restaurants are serving oysters and preparing oysters. But uh, to, to give us a bit of a background, why don't we start in France where uh, you've 
you know, spent a lot of time looking at oyster farms, oyster practices and oyster culture. Do you want to just tell us a bit about how it differs or what you first saw and how you first became interested in, in French oyster culture? Yeah, well, I've always had in mind uh, that France is really the powerhouse of oysters, not so much in tonnage production, uh, which is pretty much middle of the globe in in the level of production, but in presentation, table experience, marketing through the uh, marketing and handling and logistics through the chain, and the major fundamental difference between France and Australia, or the European Union and Australia, is the law that says it's illegal to sell dead oysters, and every box of oysters that are put on the market in France contains the bottom line, these coquillage, these shellfish must be alive at the time of sale. Same in Britain. You'll see the same thing on boxes of oysters there. In Australia, that's not the case. And indeed, uh, for people who want to sell pre-shucked dead oysters, there is a regulation in the food, uh, in the State Food Act that says these oysters must be opened under a sprinkling rose of potable water. I've raised this difference with um, various ministers and a whole range of people till I'm um, horse in the voice of pushing it. Yeah, you were yeah. talking about it in 2015. When exactly. we first <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying it for 21 years. I'll go to my grave and it'll still be the same. It's too hard to turn the battleship around. I'm only one voice. But that is essentially the difference. In France, to get back to France, if there are no oysters in the marketplace at Christmas time in France, there'll be a revolution. <laughs> uh, my uh, personal observation would put oyster consumption or oyster participation in France at about 90, 98% of the population. In Australia, my estimate is probably something more like 20%, 25%. Yep. And that is the fundamental reason because people in Australia have had a bad experience or it's not part of the home kitchen culture. And indeed, you can see it uh, in the language in that... We've all heard this one. Workers in an office. Bill's not come in today. He's sick. Why is he sick? Must have been the crook oyster. Hey, mm. blame the old oyster. <laughs> uh, I know. I know a lot of people have been through it. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. I, I still hear this all the time. Yeah. Um, we actually a, a little side anecdote, but this very house here in Browley, um, my dad's ex-partner now um we can talk about it but we we went to a, a local restaurant and, and got some oysters and things like that and we were everyone was talking about how much they love natural oysters and beautiful 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 i was quite young at the time and we came back here and everyone went to bed and things like that in the middle of the night oh, no. Oh, no. and the poor thing was up all night all night uh, hugging the toilet uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't get much worse than that. Sorry to put you off your train of thought. No, but it, you would you would <laughs> not be surprised to to learn the frequency with which those anecdotes, which I hear those anecdotes all the time. We were having a wine tasting thing in a professional place with a with a lot of professional young people the other day, and the host hostess uh, was talking and drinking the wine well she's having the wine and i said well let's have some oysters and you know is an oyster and she says well actually i don't eat the oysters i don't eat oysters i can't because you know i had a bad experience and i'm thinking 
man, and you're the sommelier in this restaurant, and how are you going to lead people through to our uh, dedicated oyster wine, seafood wine that we've yeah brought to mm. to the marketplace? Yeah. It 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 really is a tragedy um, that that we have this wonderful exotic oyster in Australia that occurs nowhere else in the world. Uh, people around the world aren't aware of our oyster. Mm-hmm. Maybe a few people in Singapore and Japan, the ones that have been initiated, do, or the occasional tourists. British people do. But if you pick up the bulk of uh, oyster books and oyster literature around the world that claim to be a snapshot of you know world oysters, none of them mention the Australian oyster. Mm. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean... This this sort of contrast between the participation in France and in Australia is interesting, and I think some of it can definitely be placed on uh, people having bad experiences and people, you know, the crook oysters that you talk about. But what else is it? There's got to be something else there because I do know people who have one of the one of the interesting things I find about oysters. It's a they're a very special, you know, very special food. Is uh, sitting above. A lot of others. I think that when when fresh oysters are opened, you know, around the table at home or at Christmas or on a menu at a restaurant or whatever, it's something that's just a little bit special and and and, and a bit different. And I know people who tell me they wish they liked oysters, yeah, because they can see how much people yeah. who like them enjoy them, but they just can't get there. Yeah. And, <laughs> You're getting into deeper territory now. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what it is. It's, and, well, and they, they, do you think? Do you think these just? You know, if you if you get if you start feeding them to kids in France, then they're just more likely to like them when they're older. Yeah. Well, what you're touching on is this dark, sensual, mysterious aura that oysters present to people, mm. uh, imaginary or otherwise. But oh, these things are raw. They're dangerous. But you know, I'm told they're really objects of passion and you know they fire you up all this sort of mysterious stuff yeah and that's what gets people in and one observation i'll make over uh some years have you ever noticed in a lot of food media how many times opened oysters appear as a photograph to get people in as opposed to any other food commodity whether it's a big steak or anything else yeah you do a count and you'll find that oysters are way beyond their proportionate relevance to the food scene. Yeah, yeah, And it's right. good because they're very, very photogenic. Yeah, yeah, mm. right. Yeah, fascinating. I think sensual is actually a good good word to use. Mysterious and intriguing, mm. all those all those types of things. Um, what did you? Let Let's talk a bit about what you've. No, let's let's talk about. When you first decided or became interested in oyster production and, and how that decision was made and, and sort of how, how your, your journeys in, in France sort of influenced that. Uh, sure. So I fell into production accidentally. Uh, I've always, well, not always. I first tasted an oyster when I, or seriously tasted an oyster when I was 14. So I grew up in the country and uh, we had friends who had a holiday house at um, Burrow Lake. And in those days, uh, there used to be a public oyster lease there. And my mother said, look, here's a jar. And she was a city girl transplanted to the bush. Here's a jar. When you go on holidays with your friends, 
go down to that public lease and fill this full of oysters and salt water and bring it home. And I, I think, oh, oysters, yuck, you know. And so my friend and I are stuck in on the middle of a summer day, very hot, very thirsty, very hungry, uh, opening oysters, putting them in the jar with salt water for mum. And I started to get very hungry. And I thought, oh, <laughs> look, I'll just try one of these. <laughs> and the, the longer story, mum didn't get anything. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. First go. Yeah. Didn't even take I was hungry. I was thirsty. And then I got it. Yeah, right. So I've always liked oysters. And then my folks moved down to Batemans Bay uh, in the late 60s. Um, and so this notionally, uh, this area has always been home while we, were, we lived overseas for quite some time, a couple of decades. So this was sort of our expatriate home. And so I always used to get a refill of oysters every time I came home. And then one day I was sitting up in our office in Tokyo in the in the suit in the three man businessman suit as a salary man suit thinking uh mm, i wonder how much oyster leases sell for you know it'd be a great place to go fishing and so i did a bit of research and on when i came home next time i spoke to a few people in fisheries and there was a ridiculously cheap well i thought were ridiculously cheap rundown farm going for sale so i bought it and did nothing with it except come and eat the oysters every time we came home or to Took a few back to Japan where our office colleagues would rip our arm off to get to the oysters. That was pretty good. Until the we finished the expatriate life, came home, and I thought, well, what am I going to do with these oyster leases? And I thought, well, maybe it would be a good marketing exercise, and that's what I was doing in, in East Asia, Japan, China, and Taiwan and Korea. And so basically brought and applied every trick in the book, every technique, every sort of strategy that we had been using with a different commodity in Japan uh, to the oysters. And to begin with, for example, um, branding, branding products and having brands that stood for something in the marketplace and differentiating them from what in those days was um, big bulk, undifferentiated commodities, just like potatoes mm. in a sack or lumps of coal you know yeah. put into bags kiss goodbye no customer relationship no trace back nothing see you later uh, any any quali quality will do and we just changed all that into a japanese uh, level of standard mm -hmm. for, uh, for food and made a connection with the end customer we only did direct business with with chefs cut out the middlemen completely because that's only an extra pair of hands in delivery time and, you know, there's a, a few questionable practices that were prevailing at the time that I didn't like and I didn't want my brands sort of besmirched by anybody else's actions. Mm. And so we really brought restaurants to the point where they sold by the piece, mm. which uh, was a big shock for the end customer because yeah. they started having to pay. I remember seeing it for the first time. Exactly. Yeah. I've still got friends friends in my neighborhood who haven't forgiven me for, <laughs> for changing it from you know 10 or 12 dollars a dozen to you know five dollars a piece yeah. <laughs> so i as a part of that you know i think that we just we just did a very quick potted history just then but at what point um tell us a bit about the the quality the quality side of things in terms of the the, the farming practices and and stuff. You you had this 
rundown lease that you didn't do much with at the beginning. How did you go about educating yourself on production and um, quality optimization, and then implementing that into your practices? Yeah, well, uh, honestly, it was a late in life apprenticeship, uh, and and there's no other way to describe it. There, there were literally no books in English on oyster farming, and there's still, to be truthful, there's there's only a handful in English. There's a lot in French. I have a whole shelf full or two in my home library of French oyster books. Yeah, right. Including the history and you know what, how it developed and why it developed and the political push behind it developing, uh, which was really people well before Napoleon and then de Gaulle really to get tourism away from Spain and which is a muscle territory but seafood territory and yeah. then he really they or both those characters really pushed the French industry uh, to make oysters a French icon basically. For tourism, to, to, to meet the tourist trade. Mm-hmm. Um, so it in Australia, it's really an apprenticeship. Uh, and I had very good neighbours, very good mentors, still got them. Uh, and you, you change your life. First of all, your life, you throw away your watch because your life gets regulated by the tide. Mm-hmm. And you learn... Every season is different. Every year is different in seasonality and weather patterns. So there are there will be different impacts from different weather patterns. And you know you can't learn that out of a book. You've got to go through it as an experience, painful or otherwise. And little by little, the uh, materials, the cultivation materials, have changed radically since the last two decades. Mm. Uh, it was very very primitive. Uh, a hangover from you know really the 1940s or even earlier the old stick culture uh, that became that was high, like the predominant you know in the 80s Everywhere. 90s the yep. predominant method yep. of growing yeah and so how has that transformed and and, and sort of what practices it's did you implement? pretty much except for some pockets uh some hard coat pockets uh it's pretty much disappeared Mm. and it's been replaced rapidly over the last 15 years by plastic culture so there's been an explosion in the design and manufacture of plastic baskets trays uh, racks piping you name it uh which has been great to see Mm. because the old uh hardwood and 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 coatings material it was just unsustainable Mm. And so is that a, is that is that based on quality enhancement or production enhancement? Look, it's better for the it's Everything. a thousand percent better for the environment. Right. Probably two thousand percent better for the farmer because some of the materials were very hazardous, uh, and it's more sustainable because you're reusing those plastic yep. uh, materials, baskets, trays, whatever. Uh, and there are now there are there is now. Uh, design behind the shapes and sizes and the mechanics, the hydraulics of what, how those baskets operate, mm. and that's and that can have real outcomes in in an oyster. Were those sorts of things used in France when you when you first went there? Uh, not really. They they caught their spat in a traditional way in different in certain areas that are uh, abundant in spat production. But then 
in other areas like the Mediterranean lagoon where I discovered the wine uh, there's no spawn it's a, just a um, 30 centimeter tide and so there's no natural spawn so they have to buy in spat yeah, from right. the west coast bring it over to the east coast uh so yeah it's quite it was quite different yeah but uh, it, i was surprised to see that actually uh, in some areas france has actually bought australian plastic equipment oh okay yeah i'm not sure that they're totally convinced of it um longer term i think they may even make their own or get alternative materials but uh, yeah it did exist i did see it in in france yeah mm. yeah so so how these you know the new the new equipment available in the industry and as you say the engineering is different there's more analysis of the different types of materials you mm. use the shapes all those sorts of things can you give us some examples of how these things allow you to better refine your practices to enhance quality well the most obvious one is a, is a visual one and that's uh these round tumblers, uh, about a metre and a half long, um, probably 300 mil in diameter. And you, the farmer puts juvenile spat in there, but with a foam uh, batten on one side of this revolving thing. And the way you place it into the water is between a couple of posts. You've got multiples of these, of course. And when the tide goes up, this thing rocks up. When the tide goes down, it rocks down. You still have, you get good wind um, friction. And the rolling mechanism, the rolling action of this, prohibits the oysters from joining together in their natural, with their natural cement, if you like. Right. And so each oyster becomes its own little single seed, and that's mm. the term referred that the techniques referred as. Uh, it's a bit like marbles, you know, the old mm. marbles, and they all become like marbles, basically. There are still front runners and slow runners, <clears throat> and then after every three months or so, these things actually grow, but they're growing with this beautiful curvature. Mm. And the farmer then thins them out, sticks them into it, sticks the excess into another one, and so on and so on, and and you continue on. Yeah, okay. So, one of our most popular brands is the Moonlight Kiss, and it's really eye candy, mm. and and it appeals to the new demographic that that we're aiming for, or that we found during some of our workshops and masterclasses, and that is the young female demographic. Okay. Because this oyster is less threatening, less intimidating, less of a gamble, and it looks cute. Yeah. It's like half a, a golf ball or a little bit smaller, and it is. It's really quite cute. Yeah. And we have many imitators now. <laughs> a nice shape. And so that 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 gives it a, a you know an aesthetic quality. What about – I'd like to sort of dive into a bit about um, what impacts the – you know the flavor of oysters and and quality on that level yeah. and, and there are so many and and what you can because it, it, it the product is such a i mean it is, oysters are such a product of the environment and you as an oyster farmer have the ability where possible to be able to you know implement practices to yep. optimize quality in response to environmental yep. conditions yep. so i want to dive into that a little bit so okay. maybe as a start Give us an indication of some of the some of the things that do some of the natural you know impacts on oysters. Okay, well, 
a decade and a half through the apprenticeship, um, on one of our trips, oh, several trips to France now, we discovered the green oyster, with revert, uh, whereby the French actually place oysters into a pond about the size of a, what we know in Australia as a dam out on a property. Uh, and in this dam, the farmers uh, have placed uh, a blue algae, which they can possess under licence from the EU regulatory authorities. And this occurs in one major area which produces 25% of French's oysters, the Marine Oloron. Uh, and they throw, they put, they place their Pacific oysters, all oysters, pretty much 98% of oysters in France are Pacifics these days because the native ones died out. Place their Pacifics in there and as the oyster picks up this blue algae, it turns the flesh green. Mm-hmm. Then depending on the stocking density, the depth and the duration, the longevity in those ponds, it will influence the greenness and the greenness, it doesn't taste any different in my view, um, uh, maybe a French thing, but on the menu, it actually commands uh, a premium Yeah. Uh, depending on the greenness. Yeah. Well, it's very French. And so now um, they've taken the uh, uh, lesson from the wine industry and wine labelling and this hugely crisscross net of cobweb of appellations and terms and you know, Grand Cru, Premier Grand Cru, yeah. and all of this rubbish, and tied themselves in knots. <laughs> it's not as bad as the wine labelling, but it's heading that way. Yeah. And that's a French thing. That's fine. It's you know? very French, isn't it? I don't know if they make a premium <laughs> yeah. wine. You know? That's great. But the impact of that, to me, the lesson for that, very deep lesson for that, was you can influence the outcome of an oyster. Yeah. And secondly, uh, the critical role of algae yes and honestly i'm i'm just now embarking on some (laughs) fairly serious investigation my personal investigation myself talking to algae labs um about the range of algae that are available Mm. are found in the water and some good some bad but you know is there a predominance of one that correlates with fatter oysters or waxing oysters uh and just see if we can i i I don't think number one we can't control nature but maybe if we monitor it we can i can tell when oysters should be good or coming Mm. into a a fatter season and of course talking about fatter condition of fatter season is another lesson from france and that is that unlike australia where the belief is the only good oyster is a busting fat oyster, the French abhor that. And yeah, right. Absolutely. And I have in my kit bag photographs in, taken from marketplaces that say, uh, you know, the fresh oysters, nice, crunchy, nice, nutty, fleshy flavour, which is the preferred range of flavour, not milky, mm-hmm. non laitus. And Australians... In the, market, in, in the industry, don't understand that. Mm. And why not? Because there's an old traditional furphy, and this is a marketing furphy between the middlemen and the farmer. So the farmer sends off his oysters, his or her oysters, in full expectation that they'll get paid, 
But if a devious person says, opens them and can get and looks at them and says, oh, well, you know, they're sort of half full or three quarters full. But he gets 50 cents cheaper oysters from another origin. He'll ring up farmer number one and say, oh, no, sorry, your oysters are too poor. Take them back and we're not going to pay you. Mm. So the summer condition, this furphy about the summer condition, totally fat with spawn, is an Australian furphy. Yeah, okay. Mm. And... God, it, it, what, how do you find yourself in your position selling to a market who prefers that, but you sort of, you know, you know, being on a different wavelength when it's it comes fine. to your opinion of it's fine so long as you so long as your chefs are not pure French. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> but I have, I honestly have had two chefs in the last ten years call me and say. There's something wrong with these oysters. Oh, really? They're milking everywhere. You know, they're, they're too, they're too gross. And we just look at each other on the lease and say, well, you know, welcome to Australia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, those French, those French chefs. Um, before we move off quality, let's talk a bit about how you assess quality when you're uh, when you're yeah tasting your own oysters or you're preparing them for distribution so <clears throat> as a rough guideline uh, what we used to tell people in our master classes was uh, and still do uh, there are really about five or six factors that go to make up or influence the outcome of the flesh in an oyster and taste and flavor and basically they are hydrology uh, botany geology uh, salinity and basically rainfall uh, and sunlight so hydrology means where the oysters are placed in the estuary and every estuary is different you've got fast moving estuaries you've got slow moving estuaries like Turos you got uh, and this that that's an important factor not only for the depth but the flow rate that'll that'll influence the shell strength um, but it also will affect the recovery after a big downpour and that's mm. That's important from a commercial point of view. As a farm, you need to keep going, not you know be held up for a month while the salinity uh, recovers. Botany is very easy, uh, and there are certain estuaries that have a botanical signature, like Nambucca oysters have this really strong, greeny, vegetative kind of flavour, if you're subtle enough. And that's because they've got forests of uh, mangrove swamp all around really really thick mangroves mm -hmm. very very distinctive and i think it also puts a bit of a slightly creamy yellow color to the oyster it's quite pleasant uh so we've got uh mangroves we've got uh, river weed estuary weed and you've got seaweed if you're near an ocean mouth so that's another one we did a, an experiment years ago for the um, slow food society and we put uh, 20 dozen oysters in a weed bed up a few kilometres up in the Clyde, left them there for two weeks, brought them out and sent them down with a control group for them to try. And to a person, they could all identify blind, they could identify the weed influence in the flesh wow. of the oyster. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Didn't taste very good, so, but I, I wouldn't do it. I mean, you wouldn't do it commercially. No, yeah. Geology is whether <clears throat> the oysters are over shale, mud, sand, whatever, the influence is you know, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, 
salinity is probably the most important one and that's when you travel what every tourist should be looking for keeping an eye on is whether the area has recently had a deluge uh, which will drop the salinity in the, in the water which will drop the salinity in the oyster and salinity really is <clears throat> the zing in the oyster you know re you really need some salinity there as a yeah. background not overpowering um, so yeah rainfall or salinity or lack of salinity is pretty important you don't want insipid tea bag oysters okay and just to mark the legality of it after a deluge of rain every estuary has a threshold after which uh, say 20 mils 30 mils of rain then the food authority um, it's an automatic closure of harvest mm. until that salinity recovers and yeah. we do testing to make sure that's happened uh, and the other one is sunlight, sunshine. So sunlight, obviously, is warms the surface of the water. So when you go for a swim, you know the surface is warmer than the bottom. And that generates the plankton and the microalgae that, that the oysters pump. And so uh, a very, very clear example of this I, I saw in France, where um, growing flat oysters in France around um, in Brittany, uh, in, the Bel in the Port de Bellon, mm -hmm. where the Bellon originated, uh, it would take them 10 years, nine to 10 years, to grow quite a big flat oyster mm. that in Australia would take three years right? because of the sunlight and the water temperature. It's yeah, okay. quite a distinctive thing. Yeah, And also it can affect the colours so that... If you've got flat oysters submerged 100% of the time, they won't get a greeny tinge. If you've got them intertidal or semi-intertidal, they'll, they'll eventually get a lovely green algal sort of colour mm. on the outside. So yeah, right. there's a lot going on in there. And so that's so the, the interesting thing about what you've just told me is that so much of your assessment of quality is based on the natural conditions. I mean, we oh, yeah. other than salinity, we haven't really talked about the taste of them yet. <laughs> uh, well, so all of those factors should give a balance. Right. And, and I guess, uh, and it's like wine. It's subjective, totally subjective. Yeah, okay. And the other part, the other angle to, you, to your question should be, why do some people like Pacific and not Sydney Rock or vice versa? Yeah. And to be honest, the only, the only honest answer I can come up with that one is... I think our palate grows up accumulating an expectation of what an oyster tastes like. So people in Tasmania growing up from scratch, or in France growing up from scratch, have only tasted a Pacific oyster. Mm. And the dynamics of that flavour is what their tongue or palate expects. Whereas for me, a Pacific oyster is really industrial. Yeah. Very industrial. I could not sit down and eat... I... When we lived in Japan, I'd go down to Mitsukoshi and get some Pacific oysters and I couldn't get through more than two or three. Yeah. I just couldn't hack it. <laughs> and it's not, they're, it's not to say they're bad or, you know, they haven't got a market. They have. That's the most universal oyster around the world for a whole host of reasons. Uh, but it's just a different flavour expectation. Mm. So it's unfair to sit up and say, oh, well, you know, there's only Sydney Rock oysters and, and the rest. When I go to France, I have to eat Pacific oysters. Yeah. But the Atlantic oyster is 
not such a bad oyster. Yeah, okay. Especially when you've got a good wine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It makes it a lot easier if you've had a few. Um, all right, fascinating. Uh, I want to move on to a bit more about the, the story of Moonlight Flat and how you've you know put yourself in the position that you are now. Tell us a bit about who was the first chef you supplied? Uh, Yvonne Menu at the Boathouse in Sydney. So when I used to come back to Australia as an expatriate from North Asia uh, and the Boathouse just opened in 1998, I think, uh, and we'd, yeah, We'd read it in the Gourmet Traveller or whatever. And so I'd go there for a meal to try the seafood because I love seafood. And the whole place just resonated. Dark timber floors, point blank working harbour little area. The fish markets were straight over there. It just hummed. And I just sat there in bliss and thought, this is the place. This is my kind of joint. I want to supply this place. And a little later on, you know, back to Japan, then came back again and sent them a... Did I, I think I might have had a conversation with one of the floor, floor managers and said, oh, you know, we've got these oysters, you know, I'd like to just send you some, see how you go. And I said, yeah, 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 very enthusiastic. And the short story uh, is we sent them the first batch back in... 99 or 98 and we got a fax people had faxes back in those days <laughs> fax back overnight saying send more yeah they're nice. delicious okay. terrific send more <laughs> and so that's how it started and from that time on number one we had the most wonderful partnership uh with the boathouse i believe we did master classes there every year for the good food month for 16 15 16 years uh, wonderful owners, wonderful series of chefs. Uh, Yvonne, French French guy, was um, a wonderful mentor in a lot of things, oysters and non-oysters. He's still around. He's down in Melbourne these days. Uh, and so the partnership began and word of mouth happened. And so every, every inquiry, every next customer was a word of mouth thing. And, and Sydney or New South Wales was our principal market for seven years, six years, until Melbourne heard about us and um, a couple of visiting chefs who came up from Melbourne uh, called us up and um, said, oh, we've got to get your stuff. And I said, yeah, I'm very happy, but I'm not convinced about the logistics. And if I'm not happy about the logistics, you're not going to be happy about the product you get. So when I do a bit more homework and can find somebody really reliable and massage them and tell them you know, how to look after this stuff, in a friendly fashion, not like, and why it has to be, yeah, you know, carefully handled. Um, then we'll do business, and eventually, eventually, it was a long haul. I did find a company that you, was reliable, could could be um, edu- not educated but schooled, and um, Melbourne became seventy percent of our market. Yeah, there you go. Was at what point? I mean, there's a couple of things here. At what point did you? At what point did you decide? This is what I want to do. I want to only supply chefs. Oh, from the beginning. Right. Absolutely. 
for reasons that I've mentioned before, you don't have admixture. Yeah. You don't have funny business going on. The middle area, and I do have one or two friends in the middle area, I've got to say, but that's a different story again. Uh, I've probably got a few enemies too, but um, <laughs> uh, it's not a, there's not a commission on either side of the transaction. Yeah. So the farmer's getting a better, truer, more accurate return. The chef is getting uh, cheaper, but higher quality or guaranteed quality. And I mean, we guarantee our stuff. If you don't like, if they don't like it, we'll recredit or refund or whatever. It's all a reputation. It's been all a reputation business and still is a reputation business. Mm. Two weeks ago, I had to call a trading halt for the first time in 21 years because I wasn't satisfied. We weren't satisfied with the quality. Mm. It never happened before. But we've had those two deluges of mm. 200 mils each. And the poor old oysters couldn't handle it. And I've never seen them looking so sad. Mm. Uh, and if I'm not happy, the chef's not going to be happy. Yeah, of course. When you when you first started supplying the boathouse back in the late 90s, mm. did you at this point already have branded oysters? Because oh, yours yeah. were definitely the first I saw. Yeah. With was Which was the first to be branded? Was it the Claire de Lune? Yeah, to be formally branded. Yeah, it was the Claire de Lune. And... 1999, yeah, and it's still going, and it would be honestly be the most menued oyster in Australia, yeah. no question about it. Mm. Yeah, very happy. Since then, we've got the Petty Claire, the Moonlight Kiss, Rusty Wire. That's a bit of a zinger. Yeah, very memorable. Yeah, a bit of a mnemonic there. Is that still around the Rusty Wire? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and the Label Rouge. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fantastic. And then, did you see? Because I remember when I, I think the first time that I ever came across your oysters was probably at one of um, Andrew McConnell's restaurants in Melbourne. Yeah, very likely. And they and they uh, they listed the name of this Claire de Lune, and it says Moonlight Flat Claire de Lune, Moonlight Flat Rusty Wyatt, and yeah. and it's so interesting to someone who's interested in food and has only seen oysters, you know, Sydney Rock oysters, half yeah. a dozen this yeah. much, full dozen yeah. this much. And they were sold by the piece. Yeah, you, 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 I sort of remember just thinking, "Jesus, what's this?" Like, yeah. you know. And for a chef to 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 put the name of your business and yeah. the type of oyster on your menu, and there's, yeah. like, oh, there's two different ones available for this from this same supplier. Yeah, is 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 fascinating. Revolutionary. Revolutionary. And bit of a gamble. Revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. And so, did you? I mean, when tell us a bit about how you you noticed your brand getting recognized by chefs and, and starting to see chefs approaching you saying, look, we've seen, we've seen your product mm. on these menus. And Well, to be honest, it, it, it really was just a lesson from Japan. Uh, brand identity, brand articulation. And as I said before, the brand's got to stand for something. And if the brand does stand for something, then the customer adhesion increases proportionately. So brand strength um, and, and, you know, I was determined to bring to the market a brand and a quality that would be beyond question. Mm. And as we've discussed previously about dodgy oysters in the marketplace, what's a chef want? He wants just what a flour miller wants, consistency. Mm. Same in, same, you know, if, if you're sitting down with six people around a table, it's no good having one poor oyster, two good ones, another bad one, a small one, an ugly one, a lopsided mm. one, and one that stinks, right? <laughs> They've all got to be the same. Yeah. Or close so yeah. there's consistency from week to week to week to week to week to week and that's our 
that's our um, life challenge. And yeah. when we're out harvesting, you know, and I look at this stuff, or when we're packing or sorting or grading, I can feel, I used to feel, Shannon Bennett's eye over my shoulder or right. Andrew McConnell's <laughs> eye over my shoulder. And I'm thinking, would he want this? Would he be happy with this? If yeah. he's not happy with that, if, if I'm my judgment, if he's not happy with that, customer's not going to be happy. With it. And that product consistency, that product quality is not going to be there. In Japan, and where, you know, where do you get these highfalutin ideas about product quality? I looked at cantaloupe in a Japanese supermarket, mm. you know, the Mitsukoshi or the Takashi Maya, and they're 60 or 100 US dollars a piece, one yeah. piece. Yeah. And of course, it's perfect, perfectly shaped, perfectly groomed, and in a nice little box, presentation box. But it's the customer purchase experience that gives that customer uh, enjoyment. It's not just the cantaloupe. It's a visual thing. And when you're buying something of quality, it's that transactional experience that hooks people. Yeah. It's such a big part of it. And I think that um, when it comes to any, any ingredient, any, any produce, that's a, lot of, a lot of that can be missed. And with, you know, with recognised brands, now we're seeing it throughout um different you know different different agricultural industries or aquacultural industries and i think it's proliferated with social media as well but any any of these recognized brands you think about something like you know blackmore's wagyu or mm. even you know things like yuzu that they grow in tassie and and stuff like that that transactional experience is mm. so different the brand the way that it's i mean i saw i, I saw someone open a a blackmore's wagyu you know, whatever it was like, it was like a whole, a whole fillet or something, something like that. And it was, as you say, like in Japan, in in, in a box with beautiful material inside mm. there. It was like this mm. beautiful boutique experience. And and yeah, if if that's not there, then you, you, the the price isn't commanded and the brand recognition isn't the same. Let me give you another example from Japan. Yeah, I'd love the to hear one it. That sticks indelibly in my mind that we were there when one of the I forget who now one of the princes got married and his bride was was i think she was a commoner i think she came from the foreign service actually but when she got married the wedding outfit was seven layers of clothing all ceremonial mm. seven layers of packaging yeah does that tell anything about <laughs> yeah. what's important in japan yeah it's a different story, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. And, and so that, that same sort of thing is, you know, throughout oysters in Japan as well? Uh, oysters are marketed differently in Japan. Yeah. Uh, the Mitsukoshi example that I mentioned before, which is like David Jones, food hall, uh, they were actually pre-shucked but vacuum sealed in a plastic, self, uh, plastic open packet thing. Mm. And while it was a hygienic, and frankly, I had no alternative, so that was a easy access to oysters but as i said before i couldn't go beyond three oysters yeah if you go down to we used to go to i used to go to skidgy market every saturday for four years skidgy market was you know the razzle dazzle of seafood in Tokyo, and it was real fun and real international seafood from all over new zealand snapper for example um and i developed friends uh vendors who were doing prawns or doing stretching eels out with a nail in the head Stretch them out and then gut them. Ah, mm. oh, it was just unbelievable. 
but the oysters used to be in huge uh, pails, maybe 10 litre or 20 litre pails, and they'd be just all, you know, opened and pre-shucked and put in there. And that was for the uh, downstream market. Mm -hmm. So oysters in that region are not, even in Korea, and definitely in China, are not intended for raw consumption piece by piece. They may be today, I don't know. But uh, they're more intended for the steaming, frying, soy sauce, oyster sauce, um, shabu shabu, all of that sort of cooking market mm. and, and that's fine that's that's their yep. culture yeah, yeah cool um i just mentioned social media but let's let's dwell on it a little bit what i'm seeing now is i, I think when when i first came across your products and um you know you'd come across other ones brand recognition but you brand recognition came from menus basically a lot of the time and and you know you could go to your website and check it out and stuff like that so you're in this interesting space where you were kind of the only story told in a way because because you were you were mentioned on the menu and it was recognizable but now with social media um everyone has the ability to tell their own story and i think that that chefs are now educating their audience and and the funny thing about how, you know, the nature of celebrity chefism, if you will, has changed was that before you had to have a TV show and a cookbook, but now you can kind of be a celebrity chef and just be a well-regarded chef at a high-quality establishment that has a good Instagram following. Absolutely. I've seen that too. Yeah. So so do you want to just like maybe tell me a little bit about how you've seen that change and how the ability for other – how you've – first we'll start with – the public being being able to be educated even further on your products via social media and via the chefs and things like that, and how that how that might have changed the way the public demands your product. Uh, somebody in I think one of my the, my rare friends in the fish market <laughs> said to me the other day, uh, and it's very true, is that to be a chef today, there there are now Instagram chefs, yeah. not food chefs, and I think that's very true. Uh, but it doesn't worry me because our oyster reputation depends on quality, not notoriety or publicity. And I'm happy to have you know we've, I've spent a lot of money on uh, you know photography with uh, with the website and and other areas. Uh, that's fine, but the our focus is remains on the quality because. Chefs will come and go. We've seen that. Instagram will come and go or trends will come and go. But I, I'm after hooking the customer who wants to return to an Andrew McConnell restaurant time and time and time again because they have confidence in the brand or St. Peter or Fred's or Mox, any of these you know, big names. They, they know the brands. The Kiss is almost iconic through um, St. Peter mm. now in fish butchery. Like the wine, I'm I'm just ever so pleased. One of the greatest rewards is to see our product take off and the marketing work with the Kiss and the wine, the Picpil Blanc, uh, in St. Peter since day one. And mm. I mean, that guy is a genius. I have seen many chefs, all the big chefs, I've dealt with all the big name chefs over 21 years. Some of them are not with us anymore, and that's fine, but... The creativity and the expertise of this young fellow 
is just brilliant. You know, you don't win a James Beard no. cookbook award by just plodding along or have being an Instagram chef. Mm. That's like a Nobel Prize or or, a, or a, yeah. what do you call it, an Oscar, right? But it's not. And and there there is n- how many how many chefs in Australia have ever won the James Beard? None. One. Oh, one. Josh Nolan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is amazing, and yeah. Well, what a testament to what chefs. I think it's a it's a it's a wonderful testament to the power that chefs have to be able to change public perception about yeah. about things now. Yeah. And I I really do think that chefs are at the forefront, or they have the ability to educate across so many different things when it comes to sustainability or yeah. and all these different things that are encompassed by 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 what he's doing especially there. in a difficult area like seafood like fish yeah you know we just don't have talent that is prepared to knuckle down and do the guts and all stuff that he does yeah it's exactly unbelievable it's it's so it's so fascinating because you kind of look back at it now and you know you take the you take the premise that um fish are a 50 percent waste yeah, product yeah, yeah. yeah and the fact that no one really <laughs> before thought well hold on let's just look at this 50 percent waste and see what we can mm. do, do with it to, mm. the, to the absolute nth degree yeah um yeah you know it's a it's it's a no-brainer in hindsight yeah. but uh but but you know to do it with the um the the the, the techniques that josh is bringing to the art are the microsurgery mm. And I keep thinking, and I've mentioned to him, that he really should go to Japan and see what the microsurgeons there do. Yeah. I mean, he's doing better. He's doing equal and better than they are. But yeah. uh, just this dedication and respect for the seafood, to see people doing sashimi very, very thinly, to, uh, to uh, surgically prepare the fungu, the poisonous Japanese fish. You know, you, yeah. you have to have a... You have to have a license to be a yeah. fungu she- a chef, right? And and that's basically what we're not. Josh isn't doing poisonous fish, but that's the level of detail that micro sort of microscopic detail that, yeah. that he's doing. Yeah, yeah. You, with um, you know, back to social media with, yep. and I think that a lot of our there are a lot of oyster other oyster growers who have now sort of. Uh, you know, enhanced their their marketing and branding, and are more recognisable and things like that. Um, is it a more competitive marketplace for you now? It is. It's um, a bit of a wry moment when I read my own vocabulary being regurgitated. <laughs> That's been interesting. Uh, but look, I'm comfortable with where we're at and what we've done. Uh, we still get inquiries based on our reputation. So, just out of the blue, we've never advertised. And we don't have to push hard in that in that regard. Yep. There's a lot of a lot of um, noise out there in the marketplace, which which will be seen through in the longer term. Yeah. But you, I mean, we, we're after a quality product and a reputation. That's that's where we're at. Yeah. And it, it seems to me that you're, despite you know being doing it for a couple of decades or more. Um, you're still pushing quality and and you know you're not just sort of resting saying we're in a good place as you say you're, you're still doing investigations constantly about yeah. algae like you mentioned before and that sort of thing i'm i'm intrigued by algae and uh i'm convinced that algae is one of the food foods of the future really mm. with a big role i mean somebody approached me to talk at some food conference an a, a- bear actual food conference 
about foods of the future. And I said, there are two. I said, we don't need to talk about it. It's, um, it's lupins, lentils and algae, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, that's where food will be. So if you want to make an investment, try and make it around those. There, mm-hmm. We have some very clever people doing algae stuff. Mm-hmm. Here, right here on the south coast. Yeah, have you, have you spoke to Pia up in Nowra? Yeah, yeah. yeah, many years ago. Yeah. yeah. And if I had time and wasn't into the oysters, I would, you know, be collaborating, hopefully collaborating with her or pursuing. But she's done some wonderful stuff. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Algal noodles. Uh, just a, so we have an algae naturally that occurring in the south coast, uh, the sea lettuce. And it occurs throughout Europe as well. And I just find that fascinating. We harvest it. We have license to harvest. We um, desic- uh, uh, dry it out and then desiccate it and use it for home use. Yeah, but, right. But I used to sell that to uh, Andrew McCann- McConnell restaurants for years un- yeah, right. until, until they learned to do it themselves. Go and get it themselves. Yeah, well, there's people out there doing it now. Yeah, um, yeah and I mean... If you've, if you've ever been on any rock platform at low tide yeah. uh, on the south coast, you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll see what we're talking about. Yeah. Favourite food of a lot of the, you know, Luderick and, yeah. and local yeah, exactly. fish in the area as exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Let's, uh, let's move on to wine. Yeah. Because it's a fascinating story. Um, let's just do it. Huh. Just launch in, Steve. Tell us about, tell us about your wine. Well, uh, in when we were talking about the oysters, I mentioned that we have been going to France every year for, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 years, um, doing, uh, looking at various oyster areas to you know, see how it's done and see what we can learn. And on one trip, we were down uh, on the Languedoc coast in the Mediterranean side, a little oyster town called Bouzigue, uh, which is, I love it, my wife hates it, but it's within a stone's throw of... Uh, some wine of uh, vineyards you can actually see them and indeed this was a barbecue thing and they were uh, burning um, vine roots and stumps and I thought Jesus that's pretty luxurious anyway <laughs> but it turns out they're all of this wine that I or grape that I discovered so sitting down having an oyster and a, and a fish or something all pretty low tech not wasn't a swanky sort of upmarket restaurant. Anyway, waiter sort of strolls over in that lovely, nonchalant, southern reg- southern country style, and just tips the wine into the glass. Went away, didn't show me the bottle, uh, and so I'm continuing busy with the oysters. And I took a sip of the wine, and wow, my head just just about blew off. It was so good. And I've always found it very difficult to find a white wine that I really, really, really enjoy. Can't put down. Mm. And I think I found it. And Mm. so immediately I thought, oh, my God, I've got to get this for our oyster portfolio for our customers to just complement the whole of table experience. You know, the oyster plus the matching wine. Mm. Uh, So called the waiter back over have a look at the label, Picpul de Pinay. Pinay is a little village in the south. Never heard of this variety. Came back home, Googled like crazy, couldn't find it anywhere, couldn't find a trace of it in Australia. And I thought, ha uh-huh. ha, um, here's a challenge. I can do this, I hope. Uh, so a couple of years strategy of how to get in touch with a grower. And that was helped by a friend, a French professor friend from Canberra, uh, who, <laughs> yeah, who paved the way, rang, rang the guy in the middle of the night and said, I've got a 
crazy friend who wants to come over and borrow some cuttings from you. <laughs> Didn't get a great response. A <laughs> <laughs> couple of years later on the next trip, uh, deliberately in the middle of dead of winter, uh, there we were banging down from Paris down to Montpellier, uh, snow on either side, but teams of people out pruning vineyards and I thought, this is great. I thought, here I am going to ask a guy I've never met in a language that's not mine to please hand over some intellectual property. Yeah. And a <laughs> what, Frenchman. What, exactly. Mission, mission impossible. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we got out, got, got there, drove, went, got a car down to, uh, to Nézignan Levesque, met the guy, um, explained what I wanted. I had two photographs. I took two photographs with me. One was a photograph of a paddock of canola on a property that we owned at that time at Cowra. And the other um, photograph was a, a, a photo of our oyster leases. And I said to him in my best franglais, Je vais la terre, je vais la désuire, but ma pas désolé, n'a pas de pig pool. And I knew he got it. Uh, and he knew what it was about. So he sort of swayed sort of gestured something different and we jumped in his car and we went to his um, vineyard where he uh, expounded on the virtues and how the mist comes in in the evening and they don't irrigate which is great and it's there's a lot of pilgrim trails around this area it's a very um, historic area Uh, and anyway long story short I had to grab him by the elbow and say look I've come a long way I'd like to get some cuttings if you wouldn't mind yeah. and he fell for it no no he's yeah. a company. he was a very nice he is a very nice guy and so he ordered his guys to cut some cuttings give me some cuttings and I at that stage I just levitated off the ground a meter or two and he gave me seven cuttings and so I came home. Well, I had all the permits and that you know, payments and everything for um, quarantine not a problem came home Surrendered them and then they went uh, for three years in quarantine. They, uh, you don't get the original spec, you get the grandchildren back. They do cultivation after Yeah, right. Okay. And put them through 50 degree centigrade temperatures so there's no question of disease. God, yeah, God forbid that I would be responsible for the death of the wine industry in Australia. No. It's okay. Three years in quarantine. Uh, in Sydney, out of Sydney, and then um, two years. That, so what you get back is three, three bushes. You know, <laughs> That's, can't do much with that. So down to a um, plant laboratory in the Dandenongs for another two years, where they multiplied them up through magical methods that I'd never seen before. Nine months in inside a laboratory with controlled climate and atmosphere nine months out in the real world sunshine and wind and rain and so we ended up with about 200 200 400 500 uh which i then multiplied up at uh, up up here in batman's bay i potted and propagated and potted and propagated and i eventually planted out 800 vines in uh trenches containing oyster shell which i thought was pretty perfect out at cara and they did extremely well when we had water uh, but when we didn't have water and in the middle of a drought, you can't get a bore driller for love nor money because they're all too busy you know, doing multi-million dollar properties. 
So I decided I needed water and I needed um, an established vigneron who knows what knew what they were doing as opposed to myself. And so down the uh, lane, a couple of kilometres, there was a, a vineyard called Windari Wines. So I rang the owner or the principal guy cold and when he answered the phone, I said, uh, do you like oysters? And <laughs> this voice came back, love oysters. <laughs> I said, oh, good. Now, let me tell you what it's about, who I am, what <laughs> all this. And so it just kicked off from there and we uh, grafted 3,000 vines uh, onto old Vidala rootstock. And he grows, or the winery, the vineyard grows under contract for us and we're now into our fourth uh, year yeah so that's how it got off the ground so fourth when was the first vintage four years ago uh, so so from march four years ago 17 yeah we had a little we had a little vintage in 17 and we put that all in half bottles okay and it disappeared in an eye blink yeah yeah it was good we've had it's been an interesting marketing exercise the original label featured a young woman opening an oyster in a wealthy Dutch merchant's house, 17th century Dutch master painting, which I thought was terrific. And the same photograph, the same picture, sorry, was on all our oyster boxes yep. at that time. And then I got to thinking, well, Steve, you're a dunce. <laughs> you know that in Australia, only 20% of people want anything to do with oysters, right? So why are you trying to ram down people's throat a wine with a picture of oysters on it? Yeah. It's a seafood wine, right? And it's a seafood wine in its home country. Mm. It's just that it's grown near a lot of oyster, funny oyster cultivation area where they grow them on trellises, actually, in the water. So we won't go into that rabbit hole. Uh, so I thought we need to uh, genericize the label. And that's what we did in the last two vintages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and luckily, we just happened to strike it at the time in the labelling industry where they came out with a new product. And uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's two fish and the scales are yep. sort of opalescent. And it's a little bit dark in that, you know, some of the flesh is missing off the skeleton. And that's just a an inspiration from uh, the fish butchery. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, tell us about Pickpool and... What is it about this wine that yeah. pairs, so, pairs so well with oysters? Yeah. Uh, so it's been around for a long, long, long time. Medieval texts uh, mention it. And the area is quite famous for it, especially during those pilgrim, serious pilgrim days. Um, but it, it, there's only 1,100 hectares grown. And it's a very limited area. Uh, and it's shrinking because the government's about to put a new TGV line right down through the middle of it. There's... A, uh, three major co-ops. Eighty uh, percent of the stuff is is sold through the co-ops. I think there's I think there's about twenty two or thirty uh, vineyards that that grow. But the the uh, fascinating from a marketing point of view, the fascinating thing from a market market point of view is that it's enjoyed an astonishing success in London or in the UK, but principally London, where it has grown 1,500% in five years wow. between 2010 and 2015. And the, and the very logical reason for that is middle-class Londoners go down to the south of France 
uh, for their summer holidays and some seafood and they've discovered it yep. and gone back to London and said to their waitros and the others, um, where's this wine? Why haven't you got it in? And so there's been a stampede uh, into at all levels, you know, from ritzy restaurants right down where it's just, you know, caught fire uh, mm. as the partner of seafood. Yep. Uh, so I was able to tap into a couple of British people who actually make the wine in France as well. Mm-hmm. They're very clever people. And one guy did his MW, Master of Wine dissertation, on the rise of Pickville of the market in in Britain, in yeah, especially right. in London. And God love him, I asked for, and he sent me a copy of his dissertation. <laughs> and amongst the... Uh, the important points of that is one that um, the supermarkets can't get enough or the markets can't get enough and they're looking for alternative sources of supply. So we're here waving our hands in the air and I've started sending samples, started competing in competitions over there and lucky, 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 we got a bronze medal in decanter competition and decanter is the biggest in the world 16,500 entries 121 judges and i think there were five pick pools entered we beat one uh huge french name we equaled two others and we came second by one point wow i'm pretty happy about that yeah that's very happy about that yeah it's it it covers it 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 jumps the credibility gap yeah for any doubters yeah just in an instant you don't have to say anything you just look at it or you look at the medal on the on the bottle yeah and just a month ago we got another one in a different competition international wine challenge in london and again you know not many wines get mentioned but we got a recommended award Mm -hmm. yeah perfect We, we have one uh medals here in australia too at uh, wine state in adelaide we got best in class um emerging and alternative varieties and best value yeah amazing and so i mean let's quickly get into the the characteristics of pickpool because i reckon the majority of people listening to this might mightn't have tasted it yet and yeah. and, and what what that is that that does pair with i mean apart from the story because the story is so such yeah. a big part of it but uh well Exactly. The mechanics of how it works with seafood, or specifically oysters, is this. Um, when you eat an oyster and you macerate it a little bit, it leaves a bit of a filmy, chalky thing around your mouth and your palate and your saliva and the walls of your mouth, which we all know you can taste 15 minutes later, basically. Mm. Um, and what the pick pool does, so it's it's um, citrusy, flinty, minerally, puckish, um, when you take a sip of the pickle after the oyster, that um, citrusy stuff sort of reacts or cleans the walls and the tongue and it reacts with that residue of the oyster. So you can actually, if you concentrate, you can actually feel it mm. happening. And I'm, that's the physical matching, the physical experience that, that I I'm just thrilled about, and I'm sure I hope more people will will enjoy. Yeah, mm. but it, but equally, and this is a wonderful uh, experience of bringing an old world wine into a new world environment, 
equally, it's a fantastic standalone aperitif on a sunny afternoon mm. in place of a beer. Yep. And it's lower alcohol. And you chill it down just like champagne on ice to eight degrees, which is, happens to be the great temperature that oysters should be served at. And it works. And so I'm really, really happy. Mm. Um, and, you know, unlike Britain, we have heaps of sunshine, heaps of great seafood and readily available. So, mm. um, And so what's the... How have you sort of gotten it out there and, and what's the response been like to this point for, for harvests later, for yeah. vintages later? Uh, so originally we went through our restaurants, of course, yep. and great supporters, and we need great supporters to have that confidence to go from year to year to year to year. So for people like St. Peter, and there's just no better flagship to have our seafood wine than in Australia's leading seafood house, so that kind of support has been absolutely terrific. And just recently, uh, well, we've been available through Dan's online for two years, and that's been okay. But recently, I was able to find the correct guy in um, Dan's fine wines category who just got it. He just understood exactly what we're doing, why we're doing, and where this wine fits into the future. And he's very excited. And so um, we're going out into bricks and mortar, I think next week or the week, in the next two weeks anyway, all throughout um, New South Wales and the ACT. We had a very successful uh, exposure at the Naruma Oyster Festival recently mm. where this wine became, or was the uh, official events uh, wine. And we sold probably 10 or 12 dozen in 60 mil and 120 mil taster glasses that's a lot of it's a lot little tasters <laughs> so that's pegging and 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 bateman's bay into bateman's bay dan murphy was given permission to stock the wine before the official rollout but to co coincide with the naruma event and honestly they have been just going through like butter it's just walking off the shelf great they're very happy i'm very happy I've spoken to uh, three outlets in Canberra who all know it and just can't wait. I've spoken to the, the nearest dance to the fish market in Sydney who has worked at Windowry, knows the product, has followed me or our products for years, can't wait to get it. Fantastic. Mm. Good news. And uh, I think that um, when it comes to lesser-known varietals, uh, you know, in like looking at from a wine context, the mission for, you know, wine importers or, uh, you know, yeah, or distributors trying to, trying to get these lesser known varieties across the line is such a challenge in, in a marketplace where, where there's so much and people are now, you know, they're intrigued to different wines and yeah. things like that to another level in, in today's marketplace. Yeah. And your ability to connect the wine to the oysters and to the story and things like that yeah. has a, it, it's such a it's such a great success of how a, how a story how a narrative and 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 this type of work can can succeed yeah, uh, yeah. it's been very rewarding to see the market uh take it up take it um with this with the story uh but we have two new chapters to address and one is we hope to have a sparkling version by the end of the year mm -hmm. which will really be a zinger 
especially lower alcohol. Mm. But the marketing data kings at ANS tell me this is where it's at. This is where we're going to go. And the future is very exciting. They see that future is very, very exciting, which is all good. So uh, a third of this year's production will go to sparkling. Yep. And the second barrel is uh, I'm absolutely committed to get this wine into London. Yeah, okay. Yep. We, I want an export arm of this to take 50% of production uh, mm-hmm. as soon as we can crack it. But with COVID, Brexit, everything else, it's interesting time. Well, we've got some new trade deals that might work yeah, in your favour right. as that's well there, Steve. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Steve, um, it's been amazing to chat because, yeah, just having the benefit of time on our hands to go through all this yeah, has been no. a privilege um, and a pleasure. So, mate, thank you so much for joining me uh, on the food absolute, flight. Absolute pleasure. And, Great. Uh, Thanks very much for inviting me. Yeah, and uh, if you're out there, you know, hopefully coming soon to a to a Dan Murphy's to near you, the, the pit pole. Yeah. Or you can get it online or you can get it direct. Yeah. Um, check the website. Uh, we do do Instagram, but we've been a little bit quiet in the last month because of COVID and and whatever. Yeah, uh, but you can Google a- Moonlight Flat and you'll find everything. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Wonderful. Thanks, Thank Steve. You. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Hello, dear listeners. Steph here. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Food Fight. If you want to get in touch with us, it's at The Food Fight Podcast on Instagram or The Food Fight Podcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you and we want to talk to you. Please leave us a five star review on iTunes. That really helps. If you want to hit me up, it's quicksandfood.com or. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.